let's just get into it. All right. Are we recording? Is this, is uh, this it? I am, I am recording. Okay. All right. Because I'm not I'm recording, recording, but... your voice, Martin okay. Kessler. Martin right. K, as you're known to those in the know, who's apparently, who does the Pink Smoke podcast now. You're a co-host of it based on five episodes in a row. Six with the Kafka thing are all going to be... I'm up to six in a row. I... I wasn't even trying for that, but I'm, I'm happy to be here. So I'll keep sneaking on as long as I can. <laughs> <laughs> um, what we are doing today, this is the first. Um, welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. This is the Pink Smoke Podcast. I am your host, Christopher Funderberg. I am joined by the great Martin Kessler, who, as alluded to just now, has been appearing on quite a few episodes this year, and it's only going to intensify. You're only going to get more Martin Kessler. As You're going to be sick of me before passes. you know it. No, I love talking to you. You're you're like the person that I really find that I love talking to movies about uh, as much as any as much as anybody. You know, it's the usual suspects: Marcus Penn, Tony Stella, Martin Kessler, John Cribbs, the people I really love talking about movies with. Um, that are, and you're not even you know wholly on my same wavelength all the time too, which I think is is a is a good thing for uh, for a lot of it. But what we're doing right now, this is the first of four episodes on Errol Morris's. TV series First Person, which ran from uh, 2000 to 2001. It was two seasons. The first season, it originally ran on the Bravo network. And this is so long ago that that's when Bravo was the arts network. I don't know if people remember, but Bravo used to be like the classy arts-based network where you could see like interesting classical music concerts and things like that. And then it switched to uh, IFC for its second season to the independent film channel which, you know, has also gone through its transformation of, you know, becoming the that 70s show rerun network or whatever it is now. All of these these channels do not have stable identities. Do you get either of those channels up in Canada, Martin, or they retitled uh, well, Canadian I, things? I did. Uh, we did. Um, I don't have real television anymore now. I just have streaming services. But uh, I remember for a long time, my family didn't really have real television. We had like three channels. And then September 11th happened. And like the next day, my father's like, okay, we're getting TV because I need to see what's happening in the world. So we got satellite television and um, uh, one of the channels was IFC. There was the documentary channel, but uh, they had the independent film channel. And that was where I was introduced to Morris's films, actually. That's where I first saw Mr. Death, which um, I think that was the first thing I'd ever seen of his. And I had forgotten this until like just kind of preparing for this episode. But after immediately after Mr. Death, they played this documentary that was like a brief history of Errol Morris. And that just kind of introduced me to his career and his films. So I think like even before I had seen Thin Blue Line or Vernon, Florida or anything like that, I kind of knew what they were. Yeah. And uh, of course, they also had first person on IFC, but yeah not not on the documentary channel but on the independent film channel which was kind of the cool channel they played like <laughs> samurai movies sometimes that and the scream channel i like too because they played like reruns of twin peaks that i had missed and millennium and you know there were shows that uh at the time like people kind of forget that like oh if you miss that week like you just miss that episode well that's you can just like watch everything yeah. <laughs> so this 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 series aired when i was in college and i didn't have a tv uh 
when I was in college that was hooked up to anything. I had a VCR, but it didn't it didn't have television channels on it. And well until like I think it was like 2008, I finally got a TV, maybe 2009. So from like 97 to 2009, I really didn't watch any any live television whatsoever live in the sense of the simpsons comes on at sunday at 8 p.m so you watch at 8 p.m not you know the simpsons is being hand-drawn live there as it happens that's not what i mean but this show i would call my parents and ask them to record it back at home because they had cable to vhs it and i remember being very um uh, feeling because I was a huge Errol Morris fan. Errol Morris is one of those filmmakers that's just been there from the beginning with me, from the beginning of my cinephilia. He's just been so important to me. He's just been a filmmaker that's meant so much. And feeling like disappointed in myself when I wouldn't remember to tell them to record it or like there were gaps. Like I didn't see, I probably saw like three episodes of this series when it first aired, you know, maybe like in the first season and then another one or two in the second season um and we might not have even had ifc channel or whatever i just remember it was difficult for me to see and i didn't see when it was aired and feeling like intensely guilty about not being intimately familiar with this show in some way it might have even been somebody other than my parents that i had recorded off of bravo i can't remember the freaking details of this doesn't matter um, but then when it came out on DVD, I got it and I got very steeped in these movies. You and I were talking about this, that I remember these movies like perfectly in general, Errol Morris's movies. I remember very, very well. I remember yeah. a lot of details, but these shows I remember just so perfectly well. And I watched them periodically. I, I watched them a lot when I first got them just as something to put on and over the years i don't think i've gone more than you know a, a year without watching the whole series again without watching them all and during this rewatch it's like uh, i really really remembered them well um did you 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 were saying you had a similar experience to me with that yeah i i never watched it as intensely as you uh <laughs> like I was in somebody who watched it every year, but I, that's also kind of a thing with Errol Morris films where they do stick in my mind really strongly. And even if I hadn't seen the episode in like years, I still remember, oh yeah, that guy with the, who wants to be a millionaire question. <laughs> and you would still like find reasons to bring it up in conversations and things. But some Morris films I've seen very few times. Like I, I would say Mr. Death, it's one of my favorite documentaries ever. And I've seen yeah. it probably twice. And I, I just remember it like very vividly. And it's not something that like I would be quick to throw on to watch again because I just sort of think about it all the time. And there are individual moments in a lot of his films that I've just been thinking about for like years. There's the part in the McNamara documentary where it's like, well, if you knew anything about Vietnam, you would know that we would never willingly fall under China's influence and stuff like that. <laughs> like, you know, you just think about for, for such a long time time um so i think it's similar with the series where just certain phrases certain ideas just kind of stick in your mind from it uh even if i didn't remember everything like there's one or two of these we're revisiting and it's like I, I, well maybe it's not so much memory as, as just like a change in perspective where you know yeah. you look at uh some of these people that we're going to be talking about very soon and it's like holy shit you know you sort of see them through more adult eyes maybe or yeah 
more cynical eyes and, and it's a little bit of a different experience that it's like, huh, he's interviewing some really smart person. I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's interesting. So the way we did this, there's 17 episodes and we divided them up into um, we're going to do four episodes of the podcast on the 17 episodes of the show. And we sort of divided them up thematically, although there's a lot of crossover between these different groups. But the episode we're doing today is The Best and the Brightest, which is on his films that are about human intelligence in some way. He specifically has two of the movies we're going to talk about are about people who got astronomically high IQ test scores, smartest man in the world and one in a million trillion. Uh, then we're also going to talk about Mr. Personality, which is about a Columbia professor whose specialty is evil and sort of the person who's been in the modern era responsible for defining psychopathy. Um, and then Stairway to Heaven, which is about Temple Grandin, who is a um, college professor and designer of slaughterhouses, humane slaughterhouses, who is autistic. So these are three, four films about human intelligence in some way, although more of the episodes in the series are about human intelligence on top of it. Then for the second episode, we're going to do crime adjacent stories, which are um, Morris is obviously interested in crime, you know. Uh, right from the beginning when he tries to make Vernon Florida about the insurance fraud and and is thwarted and then Thin Blue Line, which is the defining film of his career, the documentary, which is still the only documentary ever to free somebody from death row to uh, to free Randall uh, Dale Adams from death row. Um, and the crime adjacent stories, it's interesting in this series, it's a bunch of documentaries that are about people that are near crime. It's not about criminals. It's all about people who have sort of in the neighborhood closely related to crime have some relationship to crime without being criminals themselves then for the third episode we're going to do likely heroes which are these are his films that seem to be about people that morris admires in some way uh it includes um, a film about Denny Fitch, which is a, a, a very heroic airline pilot. The definition of hero in the other ones, I think, is a little more interesting and something we'll talk about. But it has it, it includes his probably only unambiguously positivist, admiring, odd movie in all of his career in which he has a subject of just somebody that he thinks is just a phenomenal person, you know, which is such a rarity for Morris. And in this series, there's a few people that he sort of circles around that idea, I think, a little bit with. And then the last episode, the fourth episode, will be Waste Basket Taxon. And these are his weird science episodes about the guy who uh, specializes in cryonics and the giant squid scientist hunter and the, the, um, of a curator and executive director of the Muter Museum in Philadelphia. So these are the four episodes. His films about intelligence, which we're doing today, The Best and the Brightest, Crime Adjacent Stories, Likely Heroes, and Waste Basket Taxon. And we're going to put these episodes out once a week rather than once every other week, just to try and keep it all together as much as we can and make it as um as concise as possible but i really felt strongly doing about this i can't i think you came to me with the idea of let's do an episode on first person we, we talked about it way back i think actually like this has been sort of a long time coming this episode or these yeah. episodes I, I guess what it's turned into but i forget when when i kind of pitched it to you but uh, I, I think it was just like casually it came up in conversation with some some other topic and it seemed like a good idea to talk about and I don't know life kind of 
gotten the way a couple times or something, but well, now we're finally here talking a, about it. So it's a big subject, and I yeah. really the best films in this series are as good as his feature films and his yes. feature films are among the best movies ever made. Uh, Errol Morris to me is, you know, I sometimes joke and say that the only filmmakers that matter are Boonwell and Fassbender. Right. And even when I make that, cause those are the filmmakers that really impact me the most deeply. But even when I make that joke, I immediately mine in my mind, expand it to well, and Errol Morris and Mike Lee. You know, like immediately it's just like I'm making a joke, but also like it, within that joke, Errol Morris also and Mike Lee. These are the only filmmakers that matter. Boonwell Fassbender, Errol Morris, Mike Lee and Kobayashi and Kobayashi on top of it and uh, and Hollis Frampton. The only filmmakers that matter, are, you know, that kind of. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but I really do feel like this series uh, is phenomenal. And I also have something, this is something Cribs and I have sort of argued about within the context of, of the podcast, is that um, I like short films a lot, a lot, and they get really short shrift uh, in the in the sort of film community, in the film critical community, where movies like, you know, Hollis Frampton's movies or Les Mistons or Short and Curly's that I think are as good or the wrong trousers that are as good sure. as any feature film ever made. I mean, Barbara, I'm somebody who's always maintained that Todd Haynes' best film is Daughter Get Spanked. So I'm, <laughs> I'm right there with you. Superstar is, is also. Superstar is, is also fantastic. And like you look at something like Poison, it's just, you know, a bunch of short films stuck yeah. together. So, you know. <laughs> no, honestly. And they don't, for whatever reason, get the same respect that short stories get they don't or maybe they don't get looked at in the same way episodic television does uh gets sort of peered at with a kind of uh appearing minutia eye um but short films don't and i've wanted to on the show on this podcast do more with short films and sort of give them more space to breathe but it's hard to figure out to how to do it you can't just do an episode on here's barbara sanctus's you know, uh, uh, Barbara Hammer Sanctus, you know, it's, it's a weird thing. It's trying to find a way to contextualize them. So this is episodic television. Uh, but it's also, I think that will make it maybe more comfortable to people to listen to about it. Cause that's done sometimes, but these are individual short films that really stand shoulder to shoulder, shoulder. I, I think Morris people. also considers them to be, you know, individual films. I was listening to some interviews leading up to this and, uh, there's one where he says, oh, I made this film one in a million trillion where I think somebody mentioned like, oh, your films are kind of like humorless or something like that. And he said, well, like, I think what? like I made this. I know, I know. But like, yeah, I mean, one thing that I, I think is sort of apparent is a lot of people are not good at interviewing Errol Morris, but yeah. uh, he, he's a good interview subject, obviously. So I think uh, he kind of pointed to one in a million trillion as one of the funniest things he's ever made. And you know, he obviously considers it to be a film, you know, so I, I think it's fair to talk about it in in the context of his whole filmography. And it's not just like I dashed off this TV show or something like that. You know, these are complete films. These are, like you said, things that stand up to anything else in this body of work. So, yeah. And it yeah. should be mentioned they're half an hour episodes. I think they're they're between There's like a couple hour long. 20, ones. Well, yeah, I was going to say yeah. they're between 25 minutes and 29 minutes. And then he has these two in the second season, one in a million trillion and leaving the earth that creep up to around an hour and are sort of pushing to almost demand to be feature length in some way. Yeah. 
And so you can see that by the second season, he's already stopped thinking about this as a TV show quite explicitly. And it's just going to make the episodes random lengths for whatever they should be, which is one of the things I admire about it is that they're not exactly 24 minutes that they'll range from 27 or 26 or 29, you know, that they have very erratic run times, I think is, um, it shows that he's up to something different than you're never going to believe it. We got it all in, in exactly 48 minutes again, no fat, no waste, you know, like every, it's crazy how every single one of these episodes is magically perfect at 48 minutes. You know, it's, there's none of, none of that to it that he really is making them what they should be. And you can see that with the two uh, almost mini feature episodes that he does in the second season, one of which we'll be talking about today. Um, how do you want to dig into these four episodes? I think we should go through each one and sort of explain what they are and talk about sure. them a little bit, because even more than the features, people aren't going to be familiar with them. Um, let's start with the with the what I think a lot of people argue is the best episode in the entire series. It's certainly the one that got put out as the centerpiece. Anytime there were like, I remember there was like a screening of all of these movies at some, at like film society of Lincoln center. And like the opening night film was stairway to heaven. Okay. So what is stairway to heaven? Martin, can you take us through that one? Sure. Uh, stairway to heaven is about temple Grandin, And, um, uh... The way she explains it, it's like her first language is pictures, which is something that I think is immediately easy to relate to. Yeah. Uh, but uh, she talks about having autism and not liking being touched, but also feeling this uh, relief from being squeezed. And when she first heard that, uh, I guess, cattle go through this uh, squeeze shoot, no, it's the squeeze shoot is what it's for. So this is the woman okay. that we mentioned that is a, she designed Slaughterhouse and she's a college professor at University of Colorado or was at the time of the making of this. Although none of that's mentioned in the film. These people are very presented without credentials, which is one of the things I like about it. Um, she's, she designed at, at, at the time, she says at the time of the episode, a full third of slaughterhouses in the use yes. in the United States were her system. And she designs them for individual spaces. She has one she calls like the Guggenheim shoot, which is apparently just circling higher and higher because it's a, a limited amount of space. Um, but she's a designer of slaughterhouses. And she describes that when she was younger, uh, she worked on a farm. She always grew up on farms. The veterinarians had this thing called the squeeze shoot, which was like an apparatus they'd put cows in to give medicine to them. And it applied like a gentle, but extremely firm pressure that would cause the animals to relax. And she yep. found out when she got in it, it would relieve her relaxed. anxiety. Yeah, And I guess she basically made it her mission to find a way to try to relieve the anxiety of these cattle who are about to die. And this whole idea of leading them around so that they don't, uh, get concerned it feels safe like you're going in a circle and just trying to do everything that you can to i guess make them feel comfortable uh, before they die you know she doesn't want their their death to be stressful or scary or you know any of these these horrible things that you can see with uh, maybe a poorly designed slaughterhouse 
Yeah, and she has, and she frames it in very expressly ethical terms that she says that she thinks eating meat is an ethical thing to do, but that you owe the animals a a comfortable life and a humane death if you're going to. This is my stance on this. Like, I I know a lot of vegetarians where it's like, oh, you watched a documentary that showed a really bad farm, and it's like, now I don't eat, eat meat anymore. And it's like, well, I, I don't feel that way. <laughs> you, know, like, yeah. you, don't, you don't want to abuse animals. You don't want them to feel bad. And you should be grateful that you're able to eat them. But like, that's also kind of their, their purpose. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's my stance on that. <laughs> but I know some people don't, don't feel that way. Yeah. Um, I have a weird position where I was vegetarian up until I developed these food allergies. And I simply don't have a way to get enough uh, protein and nutrients without having meat anymore. So that changed like eight, eight years ago. Um, and I was, you know, I was on and off various levels of, of, of vegetarianism. Basically I do ascribe to, uh, you know, we'll talk about it in Mr. Personality, but some level of like, there's animals in zone six. Like, have you looked in a chicken's <laughs> eyes? It's bottomless stupidity to kill and eat a chicken. There's just nothing there or fish. There's nothing inside sure. of it. I mean, pe- people Whereas are clearly pigs, like, I feel okay. genuinely bad to eat. Yeah, yeah. Pigs are smart and funny. Pigs are cool dudes. When yep. you eat bacon, you're fucking up the life of a cool dude. And that's, and that's not awesome, bro. <laughs> Um, but I really do sort of feel that way. Whereas like, <laughs> I don't eat beef for other reasons. Uh, okay. But but I, even now when I'm eating meat again, I still don't eat beef, but I find cows to be like unlikable. So I don't find that, <laughs> you know, it's a very funny scale of that kind of thing. But it's it's very, you know, I've been back and forth on, on ethical meat consumption. Yeah. And now the ethics are obviously like, I feel bad and I feel sickly and I will die if I don't eat meat now. And that's just the position I'm in, which is a nice out that I don't have to consider it ethically anymore. I can sort of, well, that's a solved issue for me. I just got to be, I want to keep continuing to exist. I really like my life. There's people that love and care about me that I've got to take care of and do the right thing by. It can't be a question of like, I'm going to die just because there's no ability for me to eat any of the protein or our iron rich vegetables anymore. I'm allergic to, to soy nuts, eggs, and um, spinach and leafy greens. Um, So it's just like, there ain't no fucking iron or protein I can have. I know this thing runs on protein. So yeah. (laughs) (laughs) um, Now you have people also talking about like, the environmental concerns of of beef and stuff like this and they're saying yeah. well maybe there should be like something like a carbon tax on meat and maybe we should have like extra meat taxes and stuff like this so none of those things work those are just no i i, I, I th- th- this is all like this is like how can we punish the middle class for something that like <laughs> big corporations are doing but yeah. now I'm, I'm hearing this like groundswell about like oh maybe there's other ways that we can like try to force people off of meat but yeah. i don't know i just you know if you yeah. force people off of meat i still got to have my meat prescription i'll go to the doctor and get my meat prescription <laughs> it'll be fine this is like Whatever a soiling green scenario exactly <laughs> you got the little like can of pate like hidden away but but to get back <laughs> to stairway to heaven which is not yeah. really about meat it's sort of a foregone no. conclusion that she's from you get the sense very midwestern decent christian farm families that that this is part of that 
that of course you're going to eat meat. Of course you're going to work on the farm. Uh, this is the way life is. It's not actually about the ethical questions of consuming meat at all. What prompted Morris to make this movie is there was a New Yorker article by Oliver Sacks, the celebrated neurologist who I actually like, although um, uh, Morris is certainly right here. He wrote an article about Temple Grand called uh, An Anthropologist on Mars. And the sort of thrust of this article is that autistic I guess people, it's it's like an article in a series um, yeah yeah uh is that temple Grandin doesn't actually have anything inside of her that autistic His, people yeah it's, it's like especially after you've seen the the documentary and you read it it's like crazy where it's like I wonder if she has an inner life <laughs> like what the exact quote is these were grand words grand thoughts and i found myself looking at temple with a heightened sense of her mental spaciousness her courage or were they for her just words just concepts were they purely mental purely cognitive or intellectual did they correspond to any real experience passion or feeling and it's like it's so dehumanizing this article and it's so much about the discovery of autism this article essentially where two different scientists uh psychologists come up with the word on their own autism which means like alone the condition of being permanently alone essentially is what the word means as a mental problem uh but a lot of what sax sort of talks about in this piece is uh which you'll see that this series is about over and over is about trying to draw borders and walls between things as Mr. Personality talks about in, in the episode we're going to discuss in his childhood that there was no clear border between Paraguay and Argentina, right? And essentially he's you're trying to draw walls between different kinds of minds. And a lot of what Oliver Sacks is trying to do in diagnosing Temple Grandin is to say her brain is not like my brain. Autistic people's brains are not like regular person brains, quote unquote, and that there's a fundamental clear difference between them. Morris reads this piece, he knows Temple Grandin, and he's like, this is crazy. She's one of the most empathetic, emotional, fun, articulate people he knows, you know, like, I'm going to make this documentary about her. Because if you see her, you will see that everything Oliver Sacks says about her is overtly incorrect. And that her, the idea of her aloneness and the fundamental wall between her brain and your brain as a person, you, the audience, it does not exist. That there's something about her that's fundamentally exactly like you, right? Even as there's something overtly different about it. And I think that that's the, the irony of a lot of Morris's work is the these people are obviously, quote unquote, different in some way, but they're also obviously the same, you know? or even admirable, she's she's probably a better human being than me. You know, she's probably yeah, more empathetic, sure. more humane, more intelligent than me, I would say about, about Temple Grandin. More thoughtful is how I would describe her. She She's very sort of thoughtful, slow speaking uh, person who measures her words. And, and I would describe her as a very thoughtful person. I think sometimes, like, I mean, you run into people when you're talking about film often who are just wired a little bit differently sometimes and it's uh, that that's how I always think of it for myself and they're often very insightful people who don't think typically I'm not just talking about autism but like I mean uh, 
our mutual friend Marcus Ben. I remember like first when I ran across his his blog and like seeing the the side by sides, the film still side by sides. It was like oh like oh there's somebody who thinks about this like I do, and I got so excited <laughs> like you know I'm, even before we ever like met in person or anything like that. I got so interested. And I remember the first email I sent him, like, I, I didn't even know his name. It was like, Dear Pinland Empire. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, I think a little bit about that. And like, the way she talks about her relationship with language, um, you know, the way she tries to imagine certain things, or the, you know, the way she literalizes certain things, like when she was talking about uh, the Lord's Prayer, yeah, you know, God, art in heaven, like you know, autistic children thinking of like God up there with an easel painting or something, yeah. you know, like it's well, she it's a way it to get like an alternate yeah. perspective that like some people don't necessarily have. If you have a different way of seeing things, like it doesn't make you less empathetic or less anything. It's it's just sometimes I feel like it can give you an opportunity to see things differently, and that's you know, it can be difficult but I think it can also be a big advantage you know there's there's been times in my life where like I've seen people who are okay they're harder working than me they're smarter than me but they're not as good at thinking sideways (laughs) you know what I mean so I felt a little bit of that when I was looking at uh, her approach and her ability to see things differently and coming up with these slaughterhouses to create a more humane experience through these cattle it's like she has a different approach a different perspective you know and that's that's valuable it's not like it's not like some impediment i don't think yeah it's 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 interesting because a lot of these films are about diagnosing brains and approaching brains from a sort of diagnosable angle you know um well, in the way but we she, diagnose things says, change yeah. so much. Like, I mean, the way people talk about autism is definitely different now than like in the nineties. And I feel like it's probably going to keep changing. I, I think like th- there's certain vagaries in trying to describe and classify and, you know, the way people are constantly sort of tweaking the language to try to get at something more accurate and describe it more accurately. Like I, I have a feeling like uh, the way people will describe what we see and describe as uh, so autism might might sound completely different in you know a couple of years, couple of decades. It might have just a completely different well, the way fundamental of describing problem this, yeah. of language, especially when you reach something as complex as mind, is that some things are indescribable, and language is a very limited tool. And in fact, as as Grandin says at the beginning of the episode, this might seem strange to you if you think primarily in language and not in images, right? She talks about how she thinks in images and how she feels in images, right? And this is something that I actually find terrifying to think about is that there's a, a psychological theory right now that some people think with language and have an internal monologue and some people simply do not have an internal monologue that their speaking is an attempt to translate something else that's happening inside them into language. That's terrifying to me because it's such a fundamentally different way of being than I am. I am nothing without my internal monologue that's constant, without that voice that's running in my head. What am I? And to contemplate people that don't have that, it makes them seem dangerous and scary. 
And it's not only <laughs> autistic people like Temple Grand that supposedly have it. There's just regular people out there and you look at them and they're staring off into space and it's like, what are you thinking? And it's not words. It's not a conversation with themselves. It's actually so terrifyingly different than how I experience the world. It feels like an alien experience to me, you know? And that's something that I have to... to to uh, you know, to come with terms with. Obviously, I'm exaggerating. <laughs> Here's I mean, one of the I, weird I think things that the like show reminds degrees me. of this. And like, yeah. I mean, sometimes I think about like uh, wait, I just this is like what we for me to okay. say. All right, as you, we you get it up. People, a lot of people think I'm extremely um, judgmental because I'm blunt and I bluntly describe things. The show is a good reminder when I watch it. I don't actually judge anybody. I am sympathetic, I think, to literally everybody in the series. I think I see myself in literally every person, with the exception of one person. There's one person in this entire series that I find true, that I just hate and find truly evil. Okay, I'm, I'm um, going to try to guess who this is, but I might have an idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, guess. There's... It, there's there's somebody who's really like it's because they're getting away with something bad and they're not going to receive punishment for it that's what makes me angry about them you know you i've given enough clues that you must be able to guess by now but everybody else i i just identify with humanity too strongly i'm really not a judgmental person at all when i say somebody's an idiot. Well, I'm an idiot too. That's part of the human condition. Somebody's <laughs> clueless or self-deceiving. Well, I am too. You know, it's really not that I'm I, I'm no better or no worse than anyone else. Just to quote Christian Langan, because that's that's who I'm most like in this entire series. Obviously, is Christian Langan. Um, is it's just there's really no judgment, and I think that Errol Morris comes to these people with with a suspension of judgment. I can't remember who described. Uh, the novel this way once, but that the novel was uh, was a space with the in which uh, judgment is suspended, and I really think in which both you know Vronsky and Anna Karina have a right to be understood, you know, and I think that that's Morris brings that philosophy to a lot of this, regardless of what his personal feelings are, and he clearly has detested some people that he's made movies about, but sure. a lot of the time he ends up becoming friendly with them, even as he sees them as being monstrous. He talks are, about how, how much he yeah. liked Ed Gein when he talked yes. to Ed Gein, when he, he was talked about having McNamara over for supper and yeah. how they got along actually. But uh, I think also though, I feel like we'll talk about this more in some of the other episodes, but like, I think because of that, non-judgmental approach he's sort of a master at getting people to or giving people enough rope to hang themselves with verbally yeah. sometimes I, I think he's very good at that because people feel like i'm comfortable i'm not being judged i'm just going to let it all out and sometimes like shocking or horrific stuff kind of just spews out but um that reminds I mean, me, we should talk a little bit about his yeah. basics, too. I don't mean to step on you too much, but I feel like That's let's a... get all the preamble out of the way. This series was done using a device for the interviews called an Interatron. And the Interatron is a big apparatus that has a it's a camera with like sort a... of a, a one way mirror where the camera is yeah. behind a TV screen with his face on it. So the interview subject is looking directly at his face into his eyes as he's talking. So they're looking directly into the camera and he does this so that the lens in his own eyes will be perfectly 
the image of his face perfectly aligned so they're looking directly into it. And then he can control the apparatus by remote because on his side of it is a screen with his interview subject's face and eyes looking directly at him. And he has this little remote control to change angles and move around. And he calls it the Interatron, right? Is the th is the object yeah, he uses. I, I the... think he said his wife coined it because it's like in interview mixed with terror. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, and the other thing to know about Morris is after he made Gates of Heaven and Vernon, Florida, he's like sort of a career fuck up for most of his life. He, he goes to undergraduate school at University of Wisconsin. Then he goes to graduate school and at Princeton gets thrown out. He's in the philosophy department. He has a big ashtray thrown at him. Yeah. <laughs> professor throws an ashtray at his head is so frustrated with him. And then he goes to uh, UC Berkeley to the philosophy department, gets kicked out there. He's sort of compulsively going to see um, uh, films at the Pacific Film Archive there in San Francisco where he meets Werner Herzog, who's still a sort of young and unknown filmmaker. It's it's easy to forget that Herzog's movies were not these giant smash hits and he was this, you know, fetid filmmaker and they become friends. They go out to Wisconsin. He goes back to Wisconsin because they get the idea of pretending to be doctors to go interview Ed Gain, right? And uh, and to to go out and talk to him, he's sort of writing a thesis while he's at Berkeley on the insanity defense, and he feels like it would be good to talk to insane people. So they sort of con their way into talking to Ed Gein, um, him and Herzog, and uh, and then also he interviews Edmund Kemper extensively, the the co-ed killer Edmund Kemper is known as, also old Bumblebutt as Ed Kemper described himself, this hulking, I think he's like six, seven. He's this huge, yeah. like, I, I feel like Ed Kemper used to be monster. kind of obscure. And then uh, that TV show Mindhunter made him a major character. And now like everybody knows Ed Kemper. Oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. good. I, I, I <laughs> let's switch to Mr. Personality because we've okay. touched on it a little. Mr. Personality is Michael Stone, who's a professor at Columbia, is like an expert on evil, is how he's defined in this. But he essentially developed these tests to test if somebody's a psychopath. He's it's got a funny. 22 point scale of evil. Yes. Um, he's obviously a ludicrous figure. This is one of the things that Errol Morris <laughs> loves to make fun of is sort of the clinical legal definitions of psychopathy and stuff like that. He spends well, a lot could of time be zany. On... It's, it's entirely possible. It's but... Zany, just no. <laughs> funny, different kind of word, a special word that's all on its own. But, um, but one of the things that I find so funny in this episode is uh, this guy, Michael Stone, he's read 400 biographies of serial killers, right? I am a true crime aficionado since I was little. My mom had me read Helter Skelter when I was 15. She's like, you'll love this. And I got like completely true crimed uh, even, even more so than a lot of people. But when he's reading the book titles, he's like, uh, my wife brings in his tutors, kids on their reading. And he's got some uh, of the trashy ones. There. Like... Yeah. But all of the titles, the moment he's like the man with the candy, I'm like, oh, that's the Dean Coral book. Like anytime he mentioned a title, I knew exactly what he's talking about. Yep. And then there's after that, there's a segment where Morris is chopping up. Um, he's describing like, it's it's like cut her head off, sodomized him, a cannibal, just just a guy who hated women, just like cutting up these various descriptions he has of killers. And I knew exactly which killers he's talking about at certain times, like that's Edmund Kemper, that's Gary Heidnick, you know, like 
just based on, you know, cut off a, a shotgun to his grandparents, cut off his mother's head, right? It's like, this is obviously Edmund Kemper he's talking about. And also when he's cutting around to being like, oh, he just went back to talking about Carl Panzram right there. He just jumped back in this story. So how like well steeped I was in all of this stuff, just like, but I feel like Michael Stone, he also later on got a Discovery Show channel. Michael Stone is sort of a precursor to the modern incarnation of true crime in a lot of ways. And that's what's most fascinating about Mr. Personality is it's this kind of pseudo sophisticated understanding of modern crime that's actually like quite lurid and immature is my main reaction to them. What do you think of Michael Stone? I, I don't buy it. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, I mean, there's so much he, he talks about to get into. I think one of the most interesting things that Morris picks up on towards the end is his lack of insight into himself. Yeah. When he's like... He seems stunned. He seems yeah, he, completely he, he's floored. Like this expert at analyzing people and this and that. And then it's like looking for Morris the tiny bit of asks him, why of are you interested in this? Why? And he's, and he's knocked out. He gives this very glib answer about like, I was bullied when I was a kid, which is incidentally what serial killers and other unlikable people in this series all claim is that they were bullied. Bullying made me what he is. Yeah. And Morris is like, well, that, that sounds like, that's why you're interested in serial killers because you got pushed around a little by it. But he also, when he's telling these stories of bullying and how he was befriended by an older kid that he then did the homework for the older kid, but he would screw it up. Morris is pointing out obliquely, you're clicking a bunch of the things that you just gave on your psychopathy list, right? Yep. You're engaged in a bunch of behaviors, parasitic behavior, deceptive behavior, early childhood behavioral problems, contempt for authority, right? You are actually clicking a bunch of things on your psychopathy list. He never says it directly, but like, why aren't you a psychopath? Like, what is your list of like, maybe are, you're a little zany, Michael Stone. I got bad yep. news for you. I would describe you as a little zany. Well, I think you realize how how bad people are at actually analyzing like what would make somebody a psychopath. I, I'm not sure people really do have a clear idea. Like, I think you know what makes I, you a psychopath is he killed somebody. I don't, like, I don't think psychopathy or sociopathy exist as viable classifications, and sometimes I, within the next fifty years they will be dropped. The way I agree. Um, I mean, sometimes I'll watch. I'm not really a true crime buff like you are, but I'll watch these like. Uh, interrogation videos that they throw up on youtube these like yes. four hour long talking to like somebody who's really killed somebody and you see them kind of either crack under pressure or lie the whole time or whatever and it's fascinating if you read the comments on youtube everyone's talking like there's some kind of expert psychologist like yeah uh, yes clearly like you know when they said no here that was like you know them exhibiting the sort of behavior that like a guilty person would and it's like you don't fucking know <laughs> like, it's yeah. such a it's such a fraud it's such a, a ludicrous thing that like we can have sort of that insight into what makes a person evil i guess i, I or yeah. however you want to describe it but well you compare it to oliver Sacks and stairway to heaven and it's part of a project to separate good minds into bad minds Right. And we'll talk about with the two high IQ people, IQ tests of good minds and bad minds again, sort of like perfectible minds. Yeah. You know, when Rick Rosner talks about wanting to be more perfectible in one in a million trillion, it's the same thing. 
Michael Stone's project is to quantify evil as part of a project to separate good minds from bad minds, to be able to pathologize them in order to treat them, right? And that's what his systems of zones are about, where you have zone six, which is the untreatable zone. Right. He compares it to Dante's circles of hell, where these are the people who are recalcitrant to treatment. But then when he goes through, it becomes sillier and sillier, where it's like the difference between zone three and zone four is like, uh, somewhat resistant to treatment and fairly resistant to treatment, you know, yes. and it's like, what are you, you know, what are you talking about with, with any of this? You're trying to make hard distinctions again, as he says on things that are actually the border between Paraguay and Argentina, that you're trying to make hard distinctions about things that are not actually hard distinctions to, to, to draw a hard distinction between yep. Temple Grandin's mind and my mind, Oliver Sacks, the genius neuropsychologist right how am i different to this person you know in a fundamental way where's the border and wall and not we probably were obviously different but we're also very similar it's hard for scientists to engage in this and again that's one of the things when we talk about smartest man in the world and one in a million trillion two and mr personality they're all obsessed with trying with totality with trying to describe the universe in totality is both Christian Langan, the smartest man in the world, guy who scored the highest IQ test ever, and Rick Rosner, who is another high IQ person who, who has a major quibble with who wants to be a millionaire. Um, they also, they're obsessed with totality. And then Michael Stone's entire project is he says, 500 words to describe an evil personality in totality. And he comes with this list of even 500 words, again, be afraid of arbitrary cutoffs. Any scientific yep. system that is exactly 500 words, you're immediately like, that's a problem. But then as he says, <laughs> he says, zany is one of those words. Yes. Morris has him read all 500 words. That, that's the one that Morris zeroes in on because it's, uh, well, he says it's zany? ridiculous. Yeah. And, and Stone's response is, ah, it's a different word than something else. And I need something that started with Z. And you're like, oh, my fucking God, this Harvard professor who's in charge of defining what psychopathy is really has been a major influence, has Zany in there because he needed a Z word. Like that is the most pseudoscientific okay. nonsense. It just makes the entire project seem zany, I must but, say. What did you think of his uh, thought experiment about being stranded on the island with the uh, Eichmann or uh, serial killer or... Who was it? I had the name um, written down. What but, is that guy's name? The, uh, the, the, the guy who went and shot up the or, uh, uh, mass killer. elementary yeah. school. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I forget his name, but it's it's like his it's Bern experiment is... Bernard he, Furrow, something like that? Bernie I Furrow. had it written down. I Sorry, I got too many notes. It's my fault. But um, basically, like, if you could choose... If you're stranded on an island... You're you know, a and, rabbi stranded on a desert if island. If you're specifically a rabbi... Um, you know, if you would prefer to be with Eichmann, who's maybe evil in sort of a grander sense of uh, orchestrating For people who the don't Holocaust. Know Eichmann, he was in charge of, he was the architects yes. of the trains and transportation that brought the Jews to the concentration camps. He was, he was the person who organized the transport, the capture and transport. And he famously... Uh, was not an anti-Semite that was friendly with a lot of Jewish people in his personal life and in fact fainted the only time yep. he ever saw the concentration camps in action. It's not even clear that he saw people being uh, uh, I think he saw them being murdered. shot is, is maybe the story, right? Yeah. Uh, it, and that, not, that's one reason why, why Nazis kind of zeroed in on gassing people is because 
shooting was considered inhumane, not for the people being shot, but for the the soldiers that said like, well, yeah. we can't have our like German men traumatized by murdering people. Like, <laughs> what's uh, easier? Oh, we can gas people. Yeah, uh, but you're so a rabbi, he, but he was. Do you want to go to the desert yes. island with Eichmann, or do you want to go with this? crazy guy who spree, went and shot a killer yeah yeah shot up a, a jewish died in the wall anti-semite racist you see him and you look at him and you're like oh this fucking guy like we've all had a guy who looks exactly like this dude in our lives and are just like oh jesus um and and what stone argues is if you're a rabbi even though this guy was one of the architects of the holocaust you're better off on the island with him than with the other guy and to which i can only say like Sure, but the problem of one guy's problem, and I think what there's different kinds of evil and what Stone is insistent on defining as the most evil is not Eichmann types. Although I would argue that the Mao Zedong, Stalin, Eichmann types are the most evil. This is what Stone gets tripped up on. The people he defines as most evil are the people who have impulsivity problems combined with uh, violent sadistic fantasies. That's to him the most evil. If you lack impulse control and then your fantasy space is about raping and torturing children. And like, that's tough to argue with, but it makes them less evil to him if they can simply zone five, which are the people who want to murder children, but they take their medicine and um, stay in their treatment plan and don't actually harm anyone. They're less evil. I think in some ways it's, it's very much a psychologist definition of what evil is because it relies on how, how well do you take your medicine and listen to your doctor? I mean, I, I felt this very strongly, usually when people talk about atrocities, but it's like, I feel like there's some kind of problem in trying to, rank atrocity rank evil in that way of like like oh you thought you thought the holocaust was bad look at how many people stalin murdered with the you know ukrainian starvations and it's like well but not to the the people who died like the percentage of the population like Khmer rouge got like you got to recalibrate you got to like i think like per capita evil per capita evil like exactly that's how people talk about this like oh which is worse and it's like when you're in the realm of atrocity, there's no worse. There's just, you're there, you're in that country. And it's like, to try yeah, to cross the border it. from Paraguay to Argentina. Exactly. You you've crossed the border. So yeah. it's like, to, to try to quantify it and rank it in that way, I, I feel like there's something, I don't know, maybe even irresponsible about trying to think of like, if you have greater you know what, atrocities, what, what then you have I lesser atrocities. It? And it's like, I don't, I don't think it's irresponsible. You know what I think it is? I think it's psychotic. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I thought you were going to say zone, zone six or something. There is, dude, Christian Langan is zone six, though. Let's talk about smartest man in the world a little bit. Okay. So this is the guy I identify with, the one I just identified being his zone six. There's this guy who scored the highest ever on an IQ test. He was the girl, Guinness Book. He was the Guinness Book of World Record holder for highest recorded IQ until, in his words, you know, those PC people got a hold of it. No, I think the exact phrase is I, and I guess IQ wasn't considered PC anymore. You know, he's very much victim to PC. I think he says, yeah, feel victim to PC. That's exactly what it is. Um, He becomes a bouncer out in middle of nowhere, Montana. He's just like a fuck up. He's from an abusive household. He never accomplishes anything of note. He takes this IQ test at some point and he sort of gets thrown out of college. He swears he's innocent. 
you know, and gets thrown out of college and all of that and ends up just becoming a bouncer, has not accomplished anything whatsoever with his life. But he is, by this, you know, measure the smartest man in the world, right? The irony, the very gentle irony of this that that Morris loves is that the smartest man in the world is a fucking idiot, right? There's no other way to describe this guy. Why I bring up Zone 6 is uh, Michael Stone talks about Zone 6 people are not just recalcitrant recalcitrant to treatment but they can in fact become dangerous like this guy um taylor uh who was an alcoholic who learned all of the language that he needed to say to work through the system so he was out uh murdering and raping women even as he was in treatment the doctors were saying no he's good this guy's on his treatment plan he's doing what he's supposed to he's identified the problems he just knew how to do it edmund kemper's another guy like this where he murdered his grandparents when he was a teenager and was allowed to go back out and live his life again essentially and murder all these people because when he had been in juvenile hall said all the right things yeah well, but he had specifically applied to be an office worker and gotten access to all of the files on every kid in the place and had learned how they were thinking about criminals and criminality and how they were being analyzed and said, oh, if I just say this, they're going to write this in my file and I can go. And he was like, like a lot of serial killers, he was like a, a cock a cop a cock lover <laughs> well, i was thinking because he no he Sorry. was he was like he right he was like riding the, the cop's dicks for sure he was like a wannabe cop who never made it but he spent mm-hmm. a lot of time around cops and in fact they were they were hesitant to arrest him at first because they were like ed kemper who hangs out in the cop bar with us there's no way he could do this right um Michael Stone talks about this zone six and Christian Langan is zone six. He knows he's learned all of this language about like humility and not being better than anybody else. And Hey, I work in a bar. I feel like this is a real situation where you can see the power of the interatron. Yes. He's looking down his eyes. You can see the phoniness of his humility. You can tell like, this guy really does think he's better than you, you know? I think at one point where he's like, oh, like, what would you do if you met somebody smarter than me, than yourself? And he's like, well, maybe they're out there on some alien planet. Like, that's yeah. the hypothetical scenario he jumps but to. But then he like, also does, he does this, like, bit about, like, well, I'd test their knowledge, see if they could hold in their mind what I hold in mind, and see if I could yeah. hold it. And then I'd put them in their place, like... Yeah, put them really... in their cases. It's this total, like, bullshit, oh like, God. I'd... I'd bounce his ass straight out of the genius bar. You better believe it. <laughs> While talking about like, hey, I'm just a, I'm just a guy, you know? Like, you don't, I don't buy it. I, I think like, it's, it's funny reading some of the YouTube comments because Errol Morris posted this whole series on yeah. YouTube. And there are people who do buy it. But I, I'm surprised because like, you know, you see comments where they're like, oh, he's so humble. How, you know, it's incredible. Somebody could be so smart and be so humble. And it's like, it's an act. Like, it feels so obvious also, to me. But the, the thing that seems fundamentally obvious to me about this episode is that he is not smart. He no. is not a smart person. And whatever definition of smart ended up defining him as a smart person is is in fact wrong yeah. is in fact incorrect it ties into it's also he's an interest he's a very very interesting character there's something about him and rick rosner who's the who wants to be a millionaire contestant who also uh um tested incredibly high iq in one in a million trillion we'll talk about that's the final episode we're going to talk about where these guys have 
some amount of self-awareness, but also no self-awareness whatsoever. Well, they both, Langan and Rosner, have ludicrous hair. Rosner has these awful hair plugs and dyed black hair, and Lagan has this like sort of widow's peak pompadour, and it reminds me of Fred Leuchter in Mr. Death. Um drinking 40 cups of coffee a day. There's just something about them that you immediately see them and you're like, that person is not seeing himself clearly. Like when somebody drinks 40 cups of coffee, you're like, you are not seeing yourself in your place in the world clearly. Rosner and Lagan absolutely seem to have no awareness of themselves. And in Rosner's case, it's quite tragic because he's obsessed with how people perceive him. He's obsessed with it. And just somehow gets further and further away from normal human behavior the more he's trying to give people what they want you know rosner i find to be a very sad character although not particularly likable langan might be the most unlikable person in the entire world although i sympathize and identify with him so much as a person who's always been labeled smart but is just a fuck up who hasn't accomplished anything it's very easy for me to look at langan and go yep that's me there i am there's a portrait of chris funderberg you know I mean, there's a thing that he says when he's talking about stupid people saying, oh, the stupid person thinks he's as smart or smarter than the smart person and there lies this is stupidity. And he completely, yeah. you can tell the irony just flies right over his head that like, maybe he's the stupid person in this scenario. Well, he tells this uh, pathetic story about like one night I was had my notebook and I was designing on a piece of paper a whole new way for conceiving of neural networks and AI. And then a bar fight broke out and uh, I couldn't remember what I had written and the piece of paper was lost. And oh, I look for that piece of paper. And it's like, you sound like a moron. Do you understand you sound like a moron? Like, do you, do you yeah. understand that you did not accomplish anything, that your idea I mean, for neural networks, it's just like, what are you doing? I think, man. like, intelligence, you can sort of define it as, like, okay, like, you're using what you already know to put two ideas to come uh, together to come to some kind of new conclusion. It's like um, computing power, you know, you can almost say. It doesn't mean you're going to use it for anything worthwhile. And it's, it's really interesting. You wrote this personal piece... Uh, which I would recommend anyone listening to go and read, but uh, you kind of crack open this moment where he um, he kind of poo-poos on the IQ of Einstein and Darwin, and specifically the Darwin moment, you kind of... Down in the toilet with Darwin. Down in the toilet is is how he uses, how he describes Darwin's IQ, and it's like, I don't know, intelligence doesn't really say that you're going to have some kind of like brilliant idea you know maybe your vocabulary is going to be better than average like uh again obviously has has good vocabulary but um like nothing nothing about producing an idea that can change the world and like i you know people say like einstein is as sort of equivalent to genius and like you know you look at uh, special theory of relativity and especially the general theory of relativity, relativity, it's like this divine revelation almost, you know, as far as seeing the world. But then you read what Einstein did for the rest of his life. Like, have you ever read uh, any of Einstein's later physics papers where he's talking about, like, the surface retention of water? It's completely unremarkable, you know, and it's just like, you can be an unremarkable person and still have an idea that's remarkable and changes the world. And it's like, 
you know, because you you could play the violin at a young age and you have a good vocabulary doesn't mean you're going to produce anything that's anywhere near as valuable as that or anything of, of value at all. So, yeah, no, this it, is obviously yeah. something people can read the piece. I don't want to rehash too many sure. of my thoughts from it. <laughs> something I think about a lot where there was this idea of like child violinists being prodigies and geniuses. Right. And now there's actually and because it was so rare. Well, right. and then like a lot of them well, no, they get now, it to adulthood and it stops being impressive. Like they real like, oh well, wait, nobody's impressed by this anymore. There's part of that, but there's also a glut of quote unquote child prodigy musicians now. There's far more child prodigy musicians than there are orchestras or venues or anything like that. Because at some point, at some point, somebody decided that this was a signifier of genius, right? And so parents who push their kids to genius started training their kids. And it turns out you can actually train kids if you just force them to do this, that it's not an act of spontaneous genius necessarily, but that you can sort of de facto force them to be as talented as as the quote unquote genius people. My, uh, One, my mother's a violin teacher, so I've seen this firsthand. And yeah. it's, it's interesting. Like, And you see some people, they do get like this point where they... They sort of burn out on that, but um, I, like I don't think it's an accomplishment. I'm, that's that's the wrong way to say it. It is an accomplishment, but I don't. It's think an accomplishment it's... of no value, right? So <laughs> you know, like especially I mean, if it doesn't no enrich in... your relationship to music and art itself. Yeah, yeah. If you're just this kid who plays violin really well and you fucking despise it, it's actually had it's worse than the kid who's mediocre who now has a lifelong love of music and relationship to it. Um, There's the I bit where that. Chris Langan's talking about um, writing a book as a child. Yeah, and he's so proud An of this. illustrated volume on turtles, snakes, and snails. Rick Rosner yeah. does a similar thing where he says, "I made a three-dimensional cur bell curve out of BBs," and you realize they're just describing normal kid crap, you know. But <laughs> <Right>. go on. <laughs> but like illustrated he's, he's... volume on snakes, turtles, and snails. It's like, yeah, everybody drew a little picture book full of snakes in it when they were a kid, <laughs> Mister Langon. <laughs> you know, but it's you realize the. He thinks it's, it's like an accomplishment. Like yeah. it's, it's a real accomplishment of value and like proof of his intelligence and everything. Like it, it's sort of this feedback loop where like, because he feels like he's the smartest man in the world, everything is sort of a reinforcement of, I'm actually smarter than you. And I, I don't deserve to be in this position that I'm in. Well, that's, um, it's, um, that's yeah. why it's so incredible. Sorry to keep jumping in. I just have a million it's, thoughts. It's fine. It's fine. To, I know. To, come, to compare them to... Temple Grandin, who Oliver Sacks is starting out saying she her, she has subhuman IQ. She doesn't even have measurable IQ, yeah. this woman. And she's so much smarter than both of them by yes. by by in the colloquial terms. Right. But I also think that like a lot of her intelligence, like Darwin, derives from sincerity and empathy to be yes. able to be sincere about the world and to be empathetic about things is actually where her intelligence derives from. It's not from the motor, as you say, like computing power. I always think of intelligence because I think the IQ test is, again, another worthless thing. Yeah. No serious neurologist I, believes I, in I, the I, IQ test yeah. anymore. But <laughs> IQ is like the a car, right? And you can yes. have an incredible Ferrari and put a little old lady behind it and it will move <laughs> very, very slowly. The little old lady is consciousness. Yes. IQ is the car, you know, and yep. you can have the car, you can 
you know, so Darwin's in a Hyundai. He's still going to win the race over Langan in his Ferrari 10 times out of 10, whatever that, that race is. But I think that ordinal rankings of something like intelligence, it's so overtly absurd that there's a scale with, you know, one at the bottom and 200 at yeah, the top. Yeah. When there's so, your brain does not work like that. It has so no, many I, different I mean, a lot of and capacities. Again, it's trying to say there are zone one, two, three, four, five, six, when it's like, no, you know, somebody is simultaneously in zone six and zone one at the same time. Sure. I mean, I remember when I was in school, we had like uh, reading tests to like evaluate how, how smart you were at reading. And it was like, I'm a slow reader. I don't like reading out loud. I, I stumble through things. I, I don't necessarily speak very well. And like they, they thought I was really stupid. And like, <laughs> I'm and, from Canada, eh? like the special. <laughs> yeah, sure. Like that episode of The Simpsons where they move. Uh, but like, I felt like I, not that I, I was like super smart, but I knew I was smarter than, than what they thought, you know? And I, I yeah. felt like, like just because I, I'm slow at reading or like I, I forget what it was. It was like some word that was, uh, I said like lawful instead of unlawful. And they're like, oh, reading comprehension. Like, you know, you think about what a human being is and what intelligence is and how you react to an environment, to how you think. Like a lot of our ways of trying to quantify that, I think are not very effective or misleading. You know, like I think, again, you know, we've sort of alluded to this, but like an IQ test seems like a quick way to just fuck up your self-perception you know yeah well that's what's interesting we'll switch to one in a million trillion which is about sure. rick rosner who goes on who wants to be a millionaire we didn't even get to the anti-dysgenics oh, yeah, before we even get to I mean, Langan is actually back, but... uh, in favor of eugenics but rick rosner goes on who wants to be a millionaire yeah. he loses very early despite having this high q and been obsessed with getting on there and then sort of starts this campaign to saying that the question was wrong and that he should get another shot right um the, with talking about uh, about him, what what did you just say? I got I got completely knocked off track. About last. how the IQ messes up with your self perception. Oh yes, I mean yes. Well, one of the he, funny things he, he says is uh, test. he gets one fifty and, and decides that's that's smart, smart but not smart enough. Yes, and then later on finds and so he decides to become like in his words a Vinnie Barbarino type. He becomes like a bodybuilder and a stripper and a nude model because he's not smart enough at 150. Later on he finds out the IQ test only goes to 150 and then when he takes a real test he gets like a Langan-esque score on it. I think 190 something like that, right? So, but exactly what you're saying is self-perception is like, oh, I'm not smart enough to be super smart down there in the toilet at 150 down there with Darwin. I'm barely smarter than Darwin. So he does everything <laughs> else. But I'll say like, this is, I have such a strong reaction to these films and such a personal yes. reaction to them. Um, a, my best friend in high school was this kid who, right? Like he got so smart, he was non-functional. But this kid I was friends with, he um, got like 1590 on the SATs. He got one question wrong. And in fact, I felt like Rick Rosner in that moment because I had gotten 1490 and felt like, oh, I'm a fucking idiot who did terrible on my SATs, even though I was failing out of high school and not studying on that because my friend had gotten so much higher. Right. And I was like, oh, I'm dumb, you know, 1490. I'm 
fucking moron. I might, I can't even, I might as well become a Vinnie Barbarino type. No, I didn't have that reaction at all. But, uh, but just like he was so smart that he became non-functional and he's of course accomplished nothing in life. And he's disliked everywhere he goes. He was somebody that just like, I had to cut out of my life at a certain point because he's so non-functional and just so there's something about his intelligence that makes him not work right in a way that I think if you want to compare him to anybody, he does compare to Temple Grandin. That's something about his mind. If you're Oliver Sacks, you look at both of these people and you go, there's something wrong with them. You know, you don't go, well, they're smart and they're valuable or whatever. You just go something wrong. I'm a psychologist. I'm a hammer. Let me identify these nails. I'm Michael Stone. Let me see these nails and, and hammer them to the best that I can, right? To that sort of reaction. But I was somebody who was always identified as being very, very smart. I got a when I was young, an exceptionally high score on an IQ test, right? That's part of why I respond to this is I was, you know, probably not high enough to be interviewed by Errol Morris, but in, in that range. And I failed out of high school. It was a terrible student. I had to get an equivalency degree after my senior year and barely was able to go to college. I was always not a good student. I accomplished very little in my professional life. I've been like, you know, as far as like goals I want to achieve in a life, I'm pretty close to zero towards it. So I have a reaction to these movies is like, I'm Billy Bean in Moneyball, right? I don't know if you remember Moneyball about the Oakland, Oakland, yeah, I remember Moneyball. Yeah. but Billy Bean was this, was this guy who was a prospect who he was a five tool prospect, they call him. And he was supposed to be great. He just had all of the measurables and intangibles to be a great baseball player. And he was a flop, right? He was not a good pro. He was not anything of note. And so when he became a manager of a team, he said, the problem is, is that somehow what we're identifying as great in a baseball player is not great. Everybody wants to build their team out of Billy Beans, but we, but the smart thing to do is to not actually do that, to identify what's being overlooked. Like they're defining great baseball players being me, Billy Bean, but I can tell you I was not a great baseball player. So we need to stop defining great baseball player that way. And I think that way about intelligence a lot where you sort of carry around this burden of like, everybody thinks you're supposed to be smart. Everybody's thinking, okay, now, now do something smart. And it's hard not to define your identity around it in some way, but also go, this is fairly fraudulent. You know, this is, this sure. is the, whatever also, they've just measured, I think is bullshit. You know? I, I do know smart people who can be very unfocused. I think like it's very common, actually. Um, I remember in the, a brief history of time documentary, when they're sort of talking about Stephen Hawking, in his youth, it sounded like he was the kind of person who was going to be like, you know, smart, unambitious, interested in a little bit of everything and accomplished nothing. And then a change in his life put him in a position where he could have a focus. He could focus yeah. on something very specifically and very intensely. And that seems to be something that Morris was interested in is like what what gave him that focus. And I think like in contrast, you're sort of looking at Chris Langan and uh, Rick Rosner as two people who don't have a focus or, you know, if they focus, it's, it's entirely in the wrong direction. Like Chris Langan's sort of, you realize that like whatever smarts he have, he has are focused entirely on like this fantasy of power that's like running presumably in his head the whole time. Um, you know, but like, Rick Ross, like his ambition becomes to do high school well. He said, like, you yeah. know, he, he talks about it almost like Such it's his calling. And I feel like yeah. 
on some level, like it kind of speaks to this like little, you know, not like some elaborate fantasy, well, like, but every once in a while I've, I've yeah. had this sort of like, I mean, I'm sure we've all had this feeling of like, shit, if I, if I knew what I know now back then, I could, you know, I could have done things so much better if, you know, I could go back to high school or university, I would have done this right, I would have done that right, I, I could have done better. And you sort of realize, well, because I went through this experiences, I'm kind of where I'm at now. But like Rick Rosner's, his ambition is to like get high school right. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and so what he, he literally worse, does, so. the explanation, he keeps going back. He graduates high school and he starts falsifying records, moving around and going to new high schools and re-enrolling as a senior. And he does this, I think, up until he's 24, something like that. He keeps doing it over and over. He's talking about how he has to shave in the morning because his five o'clock shadow is coming in. And then by the afternoon, his face is sort of settled and people can see he looks like... Bus driver's looking too, at him weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. He looks way too old to be in high school. And he's this, he's this kid who has a miserable high school experience. He's a nerd. He's really interested in girls and sort of can't make it happen. Um, but he keeps going back to high school. And he's also, he's this guy who does genuinely bizarre stuff. And this is one of the, the great episodes of the series. This episode is as good as any of his feature films. Same with Stairway to Heaven, I would say, um, where he's, um, he's like living in a pet store that he's working at secretly and eating he's like food. eating dog yeah eating dog biscuits and he talks about how dog food is good but cat food is bad that there's some oh, kind of little, little bones. bones in it yeah <laughs> in it so this is completely completely looney tunes crazy yeah. stuff that he's doing and at certain point he gets married and has a kid but then he becomes obsessed with who wants to be a millionaire right and he goes on the show and like the details of it don't matter. He goes on, he doesn't get in the center circle. And then he gets a chance to come back a year later and do it again. When he gets in the center circle, one of the very early questions, right? The way the show works for those who don't know is you answer a question up until, and I think it's 22 questions. And if you answer all 22, it's increased. Like your first question, you get a thousand dollars. Your fourth question, you get 16,000. 22nd, you get a million, right? It, it built, maybe it's not 22. Maybe I'm just taking that over from 21 making that up in my head. Maybe it's only 10 questions. I don't know, but you'd work up to a million dollars in it. And he loses on a very early question. Now, Martin, take us through the question and what his objection to it is. Cause I'm curious oh, to hear somebody else. His, his many objections. Um, so the question is, which city uh what is the city at the highest altitude above sea level right what is the capital city the capital city that's very important right. okay <laughs> so i mean his first his first objection is with the grammar of the question where he said it's phrased like you know which of any of the capital cities are at the highest altitude and he said well like you know it could be lhasa which is not one of the options and he's he's like looking for any kind of loophole anything to show that like the question was flawed um <laughs> i'm sort of putting you through it because i understand the best thing that can be said about his objection is that if you work really hard it can be made intelligible it's a very important to remember about his objection. Okay. It's not a wrong answer. They give him for it. It's what is the capital city at the highest elevation? Yeah. Bogota, Quito, um, Kathmandu, 
or Mexico City. Mexico City, City yeah. Right? And, sort of and those arguing, are the like, four Well, like, you know, it depends, like, where you measure the, the altitude because some of these cities are on a well, slant. Well, he's going through it. And he, he's got many, like, many fingers in this question trying to like pick it apart and show that it's a bad question and it's funny like i mean the title one in a million trillion it's him talking about like the odds of getting such a bad question that the question is phrased wrong here's the thing for you who don't know at home this is a very simple answer however they measure elevation and stay decide on elevation because Quito's built on a mountainside so yes. the highest points of it are like twelve thousand feet and the lowest points are down very low at like 300 yeah. feet above sea level and, something well, like that but keto is the answer and it's generally given as nine thousand. do i think it's, it's his answer which is like wrong no matter how you that's the it. thing like, that's what i was building to was katmandu was the lowest elevation of the four of the I, four I know the lowest elevation. i'm not like yeah like some kind of you know person who strives to be on some kind of trivia show or anything like that but like yeah i i, I know this <laughs> so it's like but of the four cities, Quito is unambiguously the highest. Yes. Bogota is close, right? And yeah. Mexico City is very high, and then Kathmandu is the lowest. I, I feel like I, you can imagine what was going through his head, like Kathmandu, Sherpa, the, Nepal, the mountains, yeah. and like, like it's it's yeah. a it's a trick question, and you go yeah. tricked by it, and like, <laughs> and his response is to be like, well, it's the question's problem. <laughs> Yeah, and he he goes on like a letter writing campaign to the show to try to get them to because like because back on. Yeah. the highest capital city of any capital city is La Paz in Bolivia, so he's like they didn't have the right answer on there. What is the capital city with the highest elevation? Always they phrase it what as his argument is that like anytime they say what is they mean out of every pop yeah. every possible answer right not these four answers well obviously anybody on the show is knows it has to be one of these four answers who gives a shit how yep. they phrased it this time that's his, his objections completely ludicrous he clearly doesn't know the answer as somebody who's been to uh to Quito and Bogota I will say I picked Kathmandu when I first watched this show in my head I was like I think it must be Kathmandu for what you're saying Nepal the mountains all and, of that my, um Having been to Quito, like, there's no fucking question it's Quito. You know what I mean? Although Bogota was interesting. I didn't realize Bogota was so high elevated. My son's mother is from Bogota. I've spent a lot of time in Bogota. I had no idea it was so high up. I had no idea. I know it has the steepest approach of any airport in the world that the planes come in and you feel it. You feel like the plane is pointed downward when you come in, right? Uh, and I knew that. Cause I, and I knew, cause it was in the mountains. It was that way. Yeah. I didn't realize it's cause it's in the mountains and it's super high up. Like you just got to come down and get down to the right level really quick. There's not like room to circle in the same way, but I, I probably would have gotten it wrong. Incidentally, this is just another thing popping in my head. I've dated a woman from each of those four cities too. Now that I think about it, that's very that, strange. That's impressive. It's... Um, <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I would have gotten it wrong. But the, the long and short of it is he just, he just got it wrong, you yeah. know? And I no, think like unless my, you've uh, been my to- My godmother would like went on Mount Everest and like, yeah. I, I knew, I would recognize that as a trick question, but- yeah. I, mean, I, I had no idea. I'm downplaying. I, I do like yeah. like doing trivia stuff. Like I, we talked a little bit about this on the uh, on our quiz show episode. But like, yeah. I don't know. I, there's something about it that's like interesting, but 
ultimately kind of worthless in trying to find value in being good at trivia. So Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the thing is he's defined himself as super duper smart. Later on, he finds out about the IQ test and realizes like, I got to do high IQ things now. Well, he right? says, I need to start acting smart, which is an interesting phrase because it's like, what does a smart person act like? I guess not yeah. like a, a bouncer who like cuts himself up to look like Rambo, you know? <laughs> yes, <laughs> he gives like himself Conan. aesthetic scars because he yeah, thinks he, women he will like, like them. The, um, like that he had aesthetic good taste because when Rambo 2 came out, his scars were all in pretty much the same places. So it's like, oh, I, I picked good places for my scars because I wanted women to like me and women like scars. And I had bad scars. <laughs> then he realizes women don't actually like scars at some point, which is probably true. Or the kind of women that do like scars are scary to him, I think is the, is the line yeah, he says. Yeah. But it's uh, it's very fascinating that he really has no case whatsoever. It can't be emphasized enough. His his case is ludicrous. And it's not that he's getting railroaded by who wants to be a millionaire. It's not that he got tripped up by something unfair. It's that he didn't know the answer and he got it wrong, wrong, wrong. And that is completely at odds with his sense of self, with being told that you're super duper smart and you've, you know, you've lost at a game that you can see all day long. It's not Brainiacs winning who wants to be a millionaire, you know? That's really not the kind of did show see, it is. Um, did you ever see how the guy and his Norm wife... Norm MacDonald? No, uh, the, the one who cheated who wants to be a millionaire. No. By the, this coughing scheme. It, it wasn't even that clever where it's like, just cough on the right answer. And it's like... I like, and I just started thinking to myself, like, what a stupid system where it's so easy to get caught. I was like, if I was going to do it, I would cough, cough on the answer after the right one or something like this, you know, or cough, uh, you know, as you go through the answers. And then, like, I would it's know just, that, oh, it's, it's just as simple. It. And like, yeah. but the, he was like, his wife was just like coughing on the right answer and he would know <laughs> to pick that. And it, it's so easy to pick up. Um, but it's like, this stupid system <laughs> when who wants to be a millionaire and I, they probably could have gotten away with it if they didn't go for the full million dollars if they didn't get greedy and walked away but yeah i i just thought it was interesting how uh how, how kind of easy of what like how simplistic that <laughs> you know so, like that's the kind of people who win who wants to be a millionaire maybe i don't know um, I think that's true, but it's also funny to go back to you're talking about um, what does a smart person do? He's very invested, Rosner, in the idea that his own daughter is exceptional, and he starts talking about how well she does puzzles, yes. and it's sort of like, guy, like, can't you see you're walking down the same trap that you just fell into, that she does a 3D puzzle of Mont St. Michel quickly. It doesn't mean anything, dude. Just the way your IQ doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything, right? Like you you have your accomplishments, you have your behaviors, you know, you, you have the way uh, you act. That's the stuff that's ultimately going to be meaningful in life. Or just making the puzzle with your daughter. That's not what's meaningful. That's what's meaningful. Not that she know, did it well you or talked didn't about do it like well. how became a little bit negligent while he was pursuing this. Who wants to be a millionaire? Quote. The way he talks about it, it's like it basically became a full time job for him. Yes, just trying to get this one question reexamined. Like yeah. you know, almost like you put that much effort if it's in a, like a legal case. Yeah. Not if it's if it's like a $10,000 question or whatever on a game <laughs> yeah. show, you know, so it's like, oh, my God, you know, if you put that much 
not even talking about intelligence, just if you put that much effort into like something else, you're going to yield. Yeah. Something better than like if a you bunch put of rejection that much letters. Into being a parent, it's going to yeah. yield an incredible amount of happiness. Yeah. It just will. Although I know? would say, like, just I, out of curiosity, I wanted to look up what some of these people had done since. And Rick Rosner, at least, I think he got like a job writing for like talk show television. He I wrote, yeah, he was a writer for Jimmy Kimmel for Jimmy a while. Kimmel. Yeah. Uh, Chris Langan, though, <laughs> his career kind of became being the smartest man in the world. You know, yeah. like there's many, um, I was surprised how many podcasts and interviews and things like that there were of him. You know, there's Spike Jones interviewing him and he gets interviewed and he's interviewed as the smartest man in the world. And then you start getting into like some of the things he says more recently. And it's like, it just confirms all the little like whiffs you get when you watch him here in the Morris documentary. It's like, you know, you get a little whiff of like, there's something wrong with this guy's values or well that he like, explicitly advocated I mean, for it, eugenics it, it, and for <laughs> sterilization based on high iq people I, 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 to decide like, who gets to mate you some, think some you, of the you stuff got a little whiff even, of something bad off all right, of that all right. but like <laughs> like he's just become bolder with that stuff over time and it's, yeah. it's so crazy but well it's like or his uh his metaphysical kind of idea about like oh you know we're all just like reflections of god's imagination and like really that means you know we're all like a endomorphic projection of god and like it's just you realize like he's using a lot of big words but it's like metaphysical nonsense you know yeah uh and i i feel like I, i've i've heard that kind of thing from from charlatans and from people who are just trying to like sound deep yeah. like to me it's very obviously like like a completely insubstantial idea but it's it sounds deep to some people you know what i mean um yeah these versus guys are like, also all obsessed with perfectibility like i yeah, mentioned yeah. you know rick rosner talks about you know the girl in his his high school class who was beautiful except she had a honking beezer and then she had a mysterious drunk accident and came back yeah. with her nose fixed and was perfect and how he wished about himself there were a few things all it required was a few things to be perfectible Christian yes. Langand and and Rosner both talk about like systems for understanding the universe and its totality, sort of this perfect understanding of the universe, right? That they're obsessed with. That's what Michael Stone is doing with the psychology. It's the system building and perfectibility of an understanding of evil. And I actually, the whiff I get from all three of them is something that very early on, and I can't remember where I got this idea from it wasn't my original idea but when it was pointed out to me i was like oh yeah i hate that it's the french um tendency towards system building in philosophy and science so that in france a lot of scientific history and philosophical history it can't just be here's an observable fact by itself it's always here's an observable fact that leads to an entire system based around it and that it just can't be an observation on its own that it's all got to be part of system building and i think that people who are obsessed with system building generally have pretty glib ideas about the world and simplistic ideas about the world because that's because you got to cram everything into a system and make it work 
And the problem with system building is if you have a 300 page tract and one sentence is incorrect, it causes the system to fall down. I think this is actually why Nietzsche gets obsessed with aphoristic writing later on is because he doesn't want to have entire systems reliant on each other, that it wants to be a bunch of interlocking observable facts and ideas. And if you don't like any individual one of them, throw it away. Here's another hundred, right? Like a lot of his books become those very short aphoristic things, right? Yeah. And, and it's collection and it's, of aphorisms. Yeah, it's the very, yeah, yeah. you know, German antipathy for French system building, you know, sort of like harsh well, truth in minutia, you know. I mean, thinking again it. of and I'm um, German, so there you go. <laughs> but thinking again of a brief history of time, like there's one part I really like in it where Stephen Hawking kind of develops this idea that, like, oh, maybe at the at the end of the universe, time starts running backwards. And then like they work out the calculations and it's like, huh. That's wrong. I'm wrong. <laughs> and but like it's so interesting, you know, in that territory where it's it's where mathematics and physics kind of brush up against philosophy and theology. And it's like these guys are all obsessed with math. They're all that's something that's also a red flag, is like the airlessness of math that like Rosner and Langan are both obsessed with math in some yes. way in the hawking. Sorry, go on. Oh, well, yeah, Rick Rosner even has that Born to Do Math tattoo that's like meant yeah. to remind him what he should be doing while he's uh, posing nude for modeling. But um, like Stephen Hawking, it's, I mean, especially when you're talking about like trying to come up with like a, a grand unifying theory for general relativity and quantum physics, it's like, it's maddening because you have like, this is very, uh, something that seems very structured and lawful and makes sort of a logical sense and then when you go down to like the tiniest parts of it it makes zero sense it's irrational and i feel like yeah, a lot well, of like time running people... backwards the definition of time is something that runs forwards yes. right like that's you're you're sort of saying it'll start running backwards well, it's like well you're not talking about time anymore you know like you're talking about something that on the surface yeah. it's not that it's hard for me to understand it's that you've said something stupid you know what i mean but i think a lot of people who have very kind of mathematical minds or very rational minds, like when they kind of run into the ways that the world isn't rational, it, it trips them up, you know? I mean, yeah. I, th this comes up a lot in Mr. Death. I mean, there's one section where he's in Auschwitz <laughs> and he's talking about like... <sighs> Honeymoon in oh, Auschwitz like, was the original title yeah, of that movie, by the way. He, but um, but uh, like he's talking about uh, the Holocaust being like, well, it doesn't make any rational sense why uh, a country would murder its slave workforce. And it's like, yeah, that's right. It doesn't make any <laughs> rational sense. The world is not a rational place. Trying to understand evil, it's, it's not something you can... Put in zone six. Right. It, it's not something that you can understand rationally. You know what I mean? Like, it's. I feel like, there, you know, that almost like breaks him where he's like, huh, this this Holocaust thing isn't very logical. I guess it must not have happened. Like that's yeah. sort of like insanity um, switch almost. Like um, it reminds me, you know, in Titicut Follies when they're talking about uh, like, well, like, okay, this person's completely insane, but if you accept the basic premise, yes. you know, then everything makes perfect logical sense for them. But that's and a I, funny I think, thing to bring up yeah. because Temple Gradden is Oliver Sacks trying to accept the basic premise of her and make her make sense when he should be accepting her in human terms, not the yes. basic, the quote unquote basic premise of her. Um, also brief history of time, uh, which is his 
movie based on the book about Stephen Hawking. And he was not a Stephen Hawking fan. That was a for hire job that Spielberg and Amlin hired him to do. And Spielberg was so unhappy with it. He took his name off of it and really let it be advertised as Amblin. Yeah. He was like this. You couldn't even sell this to public television is his line, Um, which is, yeah, crazy. But uh, because it's a phenomenal movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, But Stephen Hawking's mom far and away comes across as the most intelligent or wise person in the movie. She's the person you watch it. And it's supposed to be about this genius, Stephen Hawking. And it's actually about like, this very brilliant woman and her half-wit son is what it comes across <laughs> as half the time. But she has lines that are observable. Like, you know, I can't remember the exact line, but it's like, you know, Stephen is capable of talking a load of shit too, is essentially the line she has, which is like- I, I don't know if she it, said shit, but- the... No, because she's very proper. The line, I think the line is just like, you, yep. you know, he talks nonsense as much as anybody. You shouldn't, yes. just because he said it, you shouldn't think it's true. Right. which is very wise. And I think that's what people get confused with about genius and intelligence and all that stuff is, you know, just because a smart person said it doesn't make it a good idea. You know, Rick Rosner is just a fountain of terrible ideas. He's just like, he's a, he's a machine. Like, like, not even terrible, like, terrible ideas. You know? Like apocalyptically bad ideas. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, just, and, he's like, a, a machine um, for minting the worst ideas you've ever heard. Yeah. He's a bad idea press, just churning them out. You know, we've talked a little bit about this on on other episodes where, like, especially when I've looked at history, and it's always really interesting to me how you can have, sometimes it's usually a group of very smart people. You know, you read them and they're, they're very, very smart and they have some idea of how to fix the world, how to make the world a better place. And it like backfires in this like genocidal way very often like you know it's it's happened like multiple times throughout history where you find instances of this and it's like you know it it makes you consider like what a smart reasonable person can get wrong um yeah i I think like you know i'm a boonwellian you don't have to sell me on irrationality and a loathing (laughs) of technology and science you know like I'm, 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 I'm a, a, a sort of, I'd be a medievalist if I didn't like air conditioning so much, you know. But um, um, like when I'm, you heard Rick Rosner and like when when he's talking about like the high IQ community and you're like thank God this... talks about that. Oh, uh, right. Sorry, I got the names mixed up. Um, Chris Langan talks about the the high IQ community, and it's like thank god this person has no real power in the society it's like <laughs> that is how you get like camera rouge or that like that, that is how you get yeah. that kind of thing you know where you realize like oh this is the type of person who could just if he had any real power inflict some terrible idea on the world so, he'd be like, Ceausescu. there's he'd no be question Ceausescu, yeah. there's no question that's yeah. what somebody michael stone mentions and it's like that kind of like dictator who it's really who isn't motivated by anything other than kind of like a stupid dedication to something really bad you know like the Ceausescu types are not he's not like an ideologue he's just like a person who has a really bad idea and is dug in on it you know and just sort of like we'll keep doing these things you know it's it's a very it's different than Stalin who I think yes. is like, or, or, you know, Hitler as the obvious choice, Eichmann, 
you know, like a dedication to truly evil ideas. I think Langan is is probably would be exactly what you're saying, just like apocalyptically, genocidally bad ideas if he was in charge <laughs> of society. One final thing I did want to mention, just so all these episodes don't don't go too long with it. I'd like to to encourage people to listen by keeping them compact. I was thinking about too, it's a funny thing where um we you could have easily put Temple Grandin in the heroes episode. She's obviously yeah. a very admirable person. Morris clearly admires her. She's super likable. Um there's something about her uh just the way she is and what she does for the perception of autism to help autistic people live a normal life and not well, be pathologized. Also, that's very, very likable. But but what she's doing is designing humane killing machines, which is exactly what Fred Leuchter, Mr. Death, is doing. He's hired to design more humane execution machines. He's an electric chair expert who that's how he gets embroiled and everything. He has the exact same job and function as Temple Grandin, who I watch and I'm like, I would be really happy if I were her and I were able to be that good and and just good hearted of a person. Whereas Fred Leuchter, you watch and you're like, I hope to Christ I'm nothing like him. Like whatever the <laughs> things on the checklist are, I don't want to be that guy, you know? Well, but I feel like Temple Grandin, she's thing. got a really... yeah like part of it's her her attitude towards death i find like yeah that when she's talking about people who have near-death experiences and she's like oh that'd be nice but like heaven is basically just oxygen starved brains mm -hmm. um you know there's no i don't know there's like a lack of self-deception there that uh, i find like really reassuring and i i think like obviously some of these episodes could have fit into different categories but i like that we put temple green in here because she kind of offsets the the self-delusion of the rest you know yeah um, well, but it's also oliver Sacks defines her as being inherently self-deceiving inherently unable to understand herself right which is one of morris's big themes whereas you have her compared to three people who really do have horrible self-perception who have no sense of their self right and that's the funny thing about Sacks is i think that you know, if you were to ask people what is one of the main defining characteristics of autism is it's a lack of self-perception. I think a lot of people would say is one of the essential characteristics and why a lot of people put themselves on the spectrum through self-diagnosis is their inability to understand themselves. But then you see Temple Grandin and she has the most sophisticated understanding of herself of any of these people that are supposedly super duper smart of Michael Stone, Rick Rosner and, and Langan, that she really does have a self-awareness, even though that's been one of the primary things Sachs is trying to accuse her of lacking. Agree or disagree? Agree. It's binary, one or zero. One or zero. <laughs> the full of God. Do you I have any like... more thoughts about this? I feel like I ran roughshod over you, but this is like stuff that is like most essential to my... No, I know. I feel oh, like... Any other ideas would kind of be like inorganically trying to like jump back, but uh, yeah, no, this was fantastic. I, I feel like maybe I'm a better person for having been on this podcast <laughs> episode. I don't know. This is definitely, I know I talk over people a lot. That's something I'm always hyper self-aware about when recording. 
but this is really a something just like every single thing you said, like I had a book's worth of thoughts about every sentence out of your mouth. I know. Well, like there's so many things that you can just like crack open and jump into. There's so much with like Langan, especially even though it's like a half hour episode, I feel like every, everything he says, you can just like crack open and examine what he like when he's talking about academia hogging all the resources and really oh. it should be go- like i'm like oh my god and then who's the academia in the <laughs> that we talked about michael stone is the exact person he's talking about hogging all the resources and you look at michael stone and he's he's trying to identify people like christian langan i feel like i feel like of course christian langan hates him michael stone's whole life is being like guys like that are bad you yeah. know so i like first of all this was a fantastic conversation second of all i like how we're grouping these episodes together it sort of feels a little bit different to just kind of put them in a in a little cluster where you can see them bouncing off of each other versus you know just one episode in a like if we talked about this chronologically i don't think it would be the same it wouldn't be the same kind of a conversation so it's obviously like some of these the themes can connect to other categories that we're going to have but uh, it's yeah uh, no i think we came up i, I, I think mean like I, I feel like errol morris does have like these sort of key themes that like often intersect but um you can kind of classify some of them as being more into into a particular theme or idea so it's i'm excited to keep going with this i feel like what's going to be bad is like tomorrow when we talk about uh crime adjacent stories i'm going to have all these extra thoughts about in the intelligence episode um i've designed my notes but... to keep a uh, looping back and keep backtracking yeah so i think, I, I think like we, it'll probably have to come up at some point a little bit but like mr personality I, I think you sort of mentioned it's a good topic to kind of transition from intelligence into the crime adjacent topic yeah. so yeah because it's really about mind more than intelligence yes. with mr personality and that's and I, and even stairway to heaven is not necessarily about intelligence but about mind you know and you'll see that with all of with all of the others you know uh coming and and going but let's let's leave it off there next episode will be the crime adjacent stories we'll be talking about five episodes and martin this is a ton of fun yeah, i do I'm, think I'm it's a little uh i don't know how i feel that i think two of the three best episodes we talked about today though with stairway to heaven and one in a million trillion it's it's hard not to have it kind of loaded but we got some more good episodes to talk about. I feel like we're not going to be <laughs> starved for lacking of things to say. I, I don't think that'll be a problem. Oh, no way. Um, no yeah. way. I, I'm kind of looking at what we have coming up. Uh, yeah, no, we've got some good stuff. Excellent. So let's talk. We're going to record these listeners uh, several days in a row. So I'll talk to you again tomorrow, Martin. Yeah, I'll talk uh, to you. These episodes are going are gonna to go up on consecutive Tuesdays. Normally we post episodes every other week. These are just going to go up four weeks in a row. And uh, just to to keep you in the mind space. And also if you're not interested, so only a month goes by where you're ignoring the podcast. Uh, Thank you for coming on the show again. I really loved talking at you this time. (laughs) This was a good conversation. And it's uh, hard to just kind of like cover everything. There's so much to talk about and someone's like, like you said, every everything that you say, it feels like, oh, like I've got this whole book's worth 
ideas that I just need to like <laughs> cram into words. Well, it's somehow, like so. you know, I'm sitting here yep. going, and we didn't even talk about Stephen Jay Gould or Mozart or the uh, Ames Distorted <laughs> Room. Like we didn't even mention the Ames Distorted Room. That shit's so awesome. There's so much good stuff in here. Anyway, I'm I'm excited to keep going. So cool, thank man. you for having me on, and uh, yeah, I, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. <laughs>